practice and training on altar ministry. So God bless you. You can be seated. I'm not going to be reading a text now, but we're reading numerous scriptures along the way. I'm so glad that you're here on a Wednesday night. We're in a season of graduation. I appreciate your prayers for the Holbrook family. Uh, as Brother Jury mentioned, they continue to need our prayers. And I pray that the Lord would guide you and give you faith for the sacrificial offering this coming Sunday. Uh, you may have put that in the card. You may not. But we'll be bringing an offering during the service Sunday. And Lord willing, announcing that total in each service. So we'll have a total for the 9 o'clock, total for the 1130, or a grand total that we plan to announce at the end of the services on Sunday. That's a little different than we typically handle offerings, but we believe God is going to help us, and I've already received miracle stories, and I thank the Lord for your faith in God and your obedience to Him to step out in faith and to be sacrificial and imagine to see what God can do. Amen. So I want to lay some groundwork uh, through the years. By the way, uh, years ago, I heard uh, Chester Wright say that the only difference between kind of a basic church and a fully equipped church is the price that you pay in training, teaching, prayer, fasting, and it's kind of like going to buy a vehicle or anything that has features to it. You can buy a basic model or one that is fully equipped, but if you buy one that is fully equipped, you're going to pay a price for that. So we want to have a church that is spiritually equipped for ministry. You see Wednesday night and a lot of what happens on Sunday as equipping the church to do the work of the ministry that takes place outside the walls of this church. So a lot of Wednesday nights, uh, our work is discipling, equipping, training, and as I said last week, releasing people for ministry. We believe the Bible is clear that believers are full of the Holy Ghost and have power not just licensed to ministry or church deacons or elders, but every believer can be powerful. In fact, I believe the seven men who were chosen in Acts chapter 6, they were asked to serve on a benevolence committee, if you really study what they did, but they took that responsibility seriously. They were people who were filled with the Holy Ghost. They had wisdom. They had an honest report, but they were then used of God in special ministries, some became evangelists and were used in miracles and signs and wonders because they took what would seem to be a non-spiritual ministry seriously and God used them in a spiritual way. So through the years, our church has trained uh, over and over altar counselors and other ministry team ministers. That's what we've done for years. And uh, there are people who have been previously trained uh, and have served on teams in the past. But since the time of COVID and after that, we've been a little deficient in the organization of our altar counselors. Uh, we have people that know what to do because they're mature believers, and they also have had training in how to work with people when they come to the altar to pray. There's nothing sacred about the front of the church. There's nothing sacred about the end of a service being when God moves. But I believe when we worship God, we enter into his presence with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. We're thankful unto him and bless his name. We find kind of a, the vein of the spirit. Then the word of God is taught or preached. And then in response to the word, 
The most powerful part of a church service should be the altar service. Because now the word has been received and the Holy Ghost is ready to confirm the word with signs following that. That's what the Bible says. So we've, we've done a lot of training through the years, but now uh, Brother Jury is the role, in the role of discipleship pastor and director of operations and raising his hand to say, I'd like to help here. He's going to be helping coordinate, and he already leads some of these teams with our parking team, our guest experience team, baptism team, Bible studies, altar counselors, and we want to integrate these teams to communicate, be better coordinated. And so we, to that end, we had a meeting between services on Sunday, April 23rd to talk about this. And we've asked Brother Jerry and Sister Jackie Miller to work with our altar team and follow up with Bible studies. And all of these teams are going to be coordinated and integrated so they communicate and work together so we can be more effective in helping people have their spiritual needs met and our altars will be more powerful. So some coordination and communication that we've done in the past, but probably not to this level. We have people that come to the Lord and they're saved and we celebrate them, but then we want to make sure they get connected so that they're just not left out there uh, to fend for themselves spiritually any more than you would ask a child, a baby, to grow up on their own. So we have legacy team members. I mentioned some of that and We'll be training and coordinating and charted kind of the trail of a person in the records. But some of you know this, but we always try to get an altar card and a picture of a person who's been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost or has been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We'll have administrative team members who do that. We want to make sure that we don't just suddenly have a person that just finished speaking in tongues and flash a camera goes off and we stick a card in their hand. So we want to be, you know, recognizing that moment, not mechanical, but working with them. But on either side of the platform are black boxes, and those are where those altar cards go. And if someone is not uh, there doing that, then you can help with that. You can get an attention of a pastoral staff member, the Millers. They're typically in church. Uh, our altar counselors will have lanyards, and so that will, that will be easy. And then those cards are always, they're put back in these boxes, baptismal cards, people who receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then are copies, and the pictures are emailed to outreach at awpc.org. Most email addresses here are awpc.org, and whether it's prayer or connect or outreach. So that's sort of the mechanical part, and what's behind me doing this training last Wednesday and this Wednesday, a Pentecost Sunday in a couple weeks. And we want to make sure that we are at our best to help people find the Lord. Amen. Now, in the Bible, an altar is a place of death. Isn't that exciting? It's a place of death. It's where a sacrificial animal lost its life. Its blood was shed. It was a substitution for a sinner. It was an atonement, a reconciliation between God and the person. And an altar really is still a place of death. Hebrews says that we have an altar that non-believers have no right to eat of. And that altar, I believe, in the context of that scripture was the cross of Jesus Christ. 
for he laid down his life. And we bring everything to that altar and we die there so that we can live again. I spoke about this some last week and I'll refer to some of the transactions that take place. But an altar is a place where spiritual transactions take place. It only takes God an instant to do a work of his spirit. But sometimes it takes a minute or longer for a person to really get to the place that they have fully repented. In the Bible, the word repent is metanoia. It means a change of mind. And we would like to apply it and say a change of heart, mind, life direction away from sin and toward God. As I mentioned last week, sometimes you have to change your mind about unforgiveness. You change your mind about your attitude toward people. Repentance is always a change of mind. So that's the first thing that always has to happen. And at an altar, this, this place of death, a person dies to self-will, to sin, to their past, and they turn their lives over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not just the savior to pull them out of their dilemma the pit that they're in, but he's the Lord that will direct their life out of sin and toward eternal life. So it's at altars often that the word of God is received and applied through prayer, and like the spiritual transaction is often completed in our altars. So we thank God that the power of the word of God through preaching and teaching always moves the hearts of people so at the end of church, on Wednesday or Sunday, or whenever we have church, with very rare exceptions, even on business meetings, we have altar calls because you never know what a person needs and when they need it. And we're respectful of people. We don't leverage people. But we always want to give people an opportunity. And in our teaching and preaching, there's always a call to action. There's something to do. This is not a lecture. It's not just something for you to know so you can be a hearer of the word. But Christianity is about doing the word, living out the word. The word of God always demands an obedient response. So our altar calls are a call to action. It is a call for people to do something about what they've just heard, or what the spirit has been speaking into their lives. It's a way for us to guide people toward receiving the new birth experience of birth of water by baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and birth of the Spirit so they can be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Altars are like spiritual delivery rooms where spiritual babies are born into the kingdom of God. And because of that, as I mentioned last week, they are not always pretty. People do not always know what they should do. And we're not too worried about that because it can be messy and it can be a little crazy at times. That's why we want to be able to be trained so we can conduct ourselves decently and in order when a powerful altar call may get chaotic. People might weep, wail, dance, run, leap, fall out. We don't know how they're going to respond to the spirit, what God's doing in their life. And so we want to be able to manage that as much as possible. But altars are not passive. They're like an active live scene. It's going on right now, right? So we try to be observant and minister to people. And so many of you are so good to help someone. A, a lady may be praying and 
fall out and quick to grab a coat to cover her legs if necessary. And, you know, all of that goes on in altars. They're really not cut and dried. And we don't ever want them to be so clean cut and perfectly manicured and, and planned that there's no power there. And again, we know that God can do anything, but human beings respond to that power in different ways. So for all of those reasons, we need to be trained to do things decently in order, as I've said, to be prepared to manage the potential chaos. And I don't mean that in a really bad way of whatever happens in an altar. So I believe that before I go pray with someone, I need to make sure that I have an altar in my life. That I'm not going to go with an unrepented life to try to lead someone to repentance. I need to obey Acts 2.38 myself. And I need to make sure that I repent of all known sin. And according to Psalm 19, ask the Lord to cleanse me from secret faults and keep me back from presumptuous sins so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to the Lord. Amen? You want to make sure that we cleanse our lives of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit before we try to go help someone else get there in their own life. We want to be educated in the Word of God, how to lead a person to salvation and how to work with a person to guide them towards spiritual transactions that God is working in their lives. I think it's also important to develop an awareness of people, to be sensitive to what's going on with them as well as what God is saying. The souls are at stake in our altars. And those of us who have been raised in the church, we've probably seen a lot in our lifetime, some really good things and some not so good things that have happened in altar services. And my goal, as I said often, is not to make everyone be afraid they're going to do the wrong thing. We'll try to guide you and not humiliate you if you do the wrong thing, what we can perceive as the wrong thing. But we want to have powerful altars, spiritual birthing rooms, as I said. Last Wednesday night, I spoke on the laying on of hands. And so I'm just going to briefly recap that. That we know when that takes place, it's rooted in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. When there is a, a, an animal that was sacrificed and blood was shed, there was a scapegoat that was led by the hand of the fit man into the wilderness, and there were those two dynamics of identification and impartation that scapegoat symbolically became Israel. Aaron laid both his hands on that goat's head, and the transfer put those sins of Israel on that live goat's head, and he was led by the hand of a fit man to a place not inhabited where he could never find his way home again. And as I applied that last week, the truth of that scripture as that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins and he removes our transgressions so far away from us as the east is from the west. He puts them behind his back. He buries them in the depths of the sea. There are numerous ways that the Bible describes forgiveness. Amen. He does not remember our iniquities against us. So this is what took place in Leviticus 16, this identification, this impartation of what we believe happens in, in an altar service. So I want to encourage you, when you pray with a person, you know, if they come to the altar, you want to position yourself in front of them 
If I make it this far in my notes, I think I will. I want to share some do's and don'ts, but you want to get in front of them. If you're just going to join the several people that are there praying, you may stand behind them. But if you're going to instruct them, they've asked you about 10,000 times in 27 years to please stand in front of them. I'm just exaggerating a little bit. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit. That way you can talk to them. Amen? Um, I don't think we have to act spiritual. We should be spiritual. And it's okay to talk to them. God is not going to depart the altar if you find out where that person is. And I'll get into that a little bit more. But we ask permission to specially to lay hands on people. Now, this is just an aside, but it's in my notes. Uh, Brother Jeff Arnold pointed this out teaching a class in Bible college. He was a guest lecturer when I was a student. He said, no place in the Bible do you see a a person, Jesus or the apostles, laying hands on a demon-possessed person. He made a really good point about that. If they're possessed of the devil, uh, he's their property at that moment. If you lay hands on their property, he's agitated about that. But the example in the New Testament is that they spoke to the devils and they departed. That's just probably a good thing to know and a good way to act. You may not know if they're full of the devil or not. I know right now somebody's being spooked a little bit or creeped out about the devil. There is a devil. He does possess people. Amen. And when we run into demon possession, we do not run from it. We believe we have the power of the name of Jesus, that that kind goes out through prayer and fasting and the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. There's the devils are subject to Jesus Christ, to us, through his name. That's what the disciples said even before Pentecost. Last week I talked about not laying hands on a person suddenly, and the real meaning of that, I think, is putting a person into a position of authority. But also we want to be careful that we, before we try to transfer that power of God through prayer, you know, by a prayer of faith, that we kind of know where they are and that they're ready to receive that type of prayer in their life. When they empty themselves in prayer, I taught about this last week, they're repenting, they're praying, they're crying out to God. You'll often sense that they've kind of emptied themselves. And I gave the illustration last week. Someone said, you picked up your water several times that never took a drink. Well, I I think that was on purpose. You have to empty the glass before you can refill it. So that person has to empty themselves of sin before the Lord can fill them with the Holy Ghost. And if you empty yourself of sin or of the devil, but don't fill yourself with the Holy Ghost, you've made yourself vulnerable. That's why we really want people, after they repent, to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's why in our altar services, we try not to just pray and be meditative and consecrating ourselves to the Lord, but also celebrate and worship and let there be an environment where people can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If we leave kind of spiritually down, then they may leave repenting, but not receiving what they needed from God. So we're trying to transition the altar service from just being down. You may be looking at your watch and ready to go eat lunch, but you've got people who need a miracle from the Lord. So when you see me start encouraging worship or whoever's preaching, we're not just trying to create 
some emotional thing. We're trying to create an atmosphere of worship and praise and the power of God so they can receive the Holy Ghost. Amen. Been pastor here long enough to see when I felt like our altars were dead. They just were not powerful. And I've seen them so powerful that I believed anybody who walked in here would just have to want to leave without the Holy Ghost because the church was prayed up and ready and the altars were powerful. And so we want to see that happen. So when they begin to repent and they've reached that place of repentance, then we encourage worship and praise to the Lord. And then that's when you lay your hands on them and in the name of Jesus, pray that prayer of faith and transfer of the power of God. And part of that I said last week, I'm repeating it on person on purpose so you will you'll get that. Amen. Now in the book of Revelation 22, 17. The Bible says, and the spirit, Revelation 22, 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I love this verse. It's the last chapter of your Bible. But the spirit invites people to the Lord. And the bride, the church, says, come. And if you hear it, you say, come. You join in that invitation. And then whosoever will, it does not matter who they are. I read an amazing article in the Pentecostal Herald last evening uh, of a man whose life was steeped in immorality, of perversion, of years of homosexuality, was delivered by the power of God. We believe that whosoever will, that it doesn't matter where they've been or what they've done, that Jesus Christ will forgive them of their sins. Amen. He said, what about the unpardonable sin? If they've committed the unpardonable sin, they're probably not coming because they've, they've crucified the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. They've taken the cross out of their life. But if they come to Jesus Christ, he's probably still calling them and there's probably still hope. Now, as youth pastors, it seemed like every 13 or 14-year-old that had been bad was afraid they'd committed the unpardonable sin. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's unlikely that they had reached that, reached that place of debauchery at that early age in their life. The Spirit says come. The bride says come. And I'm saying that because I believe that we, the church, are part of giving that altar call. It's not just the Holy Ghost talking to them. It's not just a preacher saying, come. It's the church praying with the message, observing people around them, praying that they would come and then inviting them to come. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I've taught on this in a message called Conquering Condemnation. But when condemnation is working in a person's life, it will drive them away from God, an altar, church, godly people. Condemnation is psychological guilt, the guilt that comes from Satan who accuses people, and that person feels like they need to get away. That is not of God. But the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, 
Godly sorrow is a drawing spirit. Praise God. It works repentance. Godly sorrow is not repentance, but it works repentance, and it draws people toward God. So when a saint feels the Holy Ghost, we feel the freedom of sin. When a sinner feels the Holy Ghost, they feel the conviction of sin. They feel a Holy Spirit in an unholy life, and they should. But it is calling them and drawing them, and the church must work with the Holy Ghost to bring them to a place of the altar and prayer and spiritual transaction. The Bible said that we're begotten by the Word of God. And we also, as a church, are ambassadors of that spiritual transaction. As a teenager, uh, our choir would stay on the platform because <clears throat> there wasn't room in the sanctuary. So I had the observation, I think from this perspective, was sitting like right over there. And as my pastor or an evangelist was preaching, sometimes I would see a person, a guest, who was under conviction. They were feeling the presence of the Lord. And I just started making a practice to pray for that person. And I would just see them in my mind by faith, getting up out of the seat and coming to the altar and praying. And it didn't happen every time, but I saw my role as a church member, not a preacher, of being part of that the bride saying come and praying for that person. And then at times going to that person and inviting them to come and pray. When a minister is emphasizing a point, why don't you, it's good to say amen. amen. If, yeah, it's sort of like that, right? Thank you. If a guest is here and the, the minister is making a really important point, and if the church doesn't believe it, then they may, well, man, nobody here believes that. There's, why would I want to believe that? And so the, the, the bride is saying, come, by worship, by preaching with the preacher, Amen. I preached in churches where their custom was, their culture rather, that everybody just listened very intently while you preached. Hardly made a sound. But then when altar call came, they would all come and really good pray really well. And it took me back. I've also been in churches when it was dead during preaching and the altar. And that's not what we want. I like it the way we do it, that people kind of preach with the preacher and pray with the guests and people that have needs. Amen. So I'm trying to equip a little bit today, being very intentional about what I'm saying, that we would, would really be part of the bride of Christ that extends the invitation. We're joining with God. We're laborers together with God. And the Spirit says, come, and the bride says, come. Amen. Everybody with me so far? Give me another hearty amen. All right. Change direction just a little bit, but about praying with people. So I've taught on this in the past, uh, maybe just the ministers mentioned in a message about reading and reaching people, reading their receptivity. You can't always judge a book by the cover, can't always read what's going on inside of a person by facial expression or tears. You know, that's obvious, right? But sometimes they're stoic, but something's going on in the inside that you can't see. Uh, so experience is a great teacher Sometimes you learn by experience of observing people, praying with them, and you can sense the nature of a person, their personality, and how they're responding. Uh, this is kind of an overgeneralization, 
But often ladies are more emotionally and spiritually integrated and respond more readily to, to the Spirit of God and they're more in tune with their emotions. Many men were raised that it's not manly to cry or express your emotions. I'm glad I had a dad who was very a powerful man and a hard worker and an outdoorsman and athletic, but he could cry and dance in the Spirit and worship God. And he taught me that you could be like David, right? I've told you about David. He could kill you and then write a song about it. He was a warrior. He was a worshiper. He was fully integrated. And sometimes men are a little more stoic. We got to try to read that. In Acts 17, I'm just going to do a drive-by of this. When Paul spoke to the pagans at Mars Hill, the city of Athens, some mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again more later. And some clave to him. So there are three responses. Some just made fun. You have that. Some said, we need to hear more. And if that's where people are, you can try to push them, but they're not ready. They need a Bible study. They need a testimony. They need more information. And then some in that response, Acts 17, 34, they clave to him. They responded to the word of God. And you work with people where they are. Sometimes I'll ask some questions and probe, but try not to get too pushy. And if I tell that a person is not wanting to pray, I generally back off unless I really feel directed to the Lord to just try to probe a little more, say a little more, ask a few more questions, uh, but then try to give them some space. There's generally going to be a felt need and a true need. There's a great example of this in Mark chapter 2 when that paralyzed man was lowered through the roof into the presence of Jesus Christ. His four friends brought him there. And when Jesus saw him, Jesus said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Which is really interesting. What kind of sins can a paralyzed man commit? He wasn't robbing banks. He wasn't. Probably there's a lot of things that we think are sinful that he was not doing. And Jesus forgave his sins. And I, I just envisioned the four friends looking down through the roof, kind of like, no, like that's, you've got the wrong guy. He's come to church today for healing, not forgiveness. And then people, mockers, were saying, who, who does he think he is? No one can forgive sins but God only. And Jesus asked them, which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee or take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the sick of the palsy, take up your bed and walk. Pretty powerful. Well, I can tell you that it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, because nobody knows whether they were forgiven or not. Only God knows. But if you say, take up your bed and walk, and a paralyzed man walks, then you know. But Jesus said, I'm going to do a miracle of healing, so you will know I also have the power to forgive sins. Sometimes people come for their healing, but their deeper need is their sin. So we start where they are, right? We, I don't like to say this to people, but we begin at their point of need. 
They come, now Jesus is better than us, and he went right to the core issue. Sometimes we may start with the paralysis, right? What do you need from the Lord? And again, we don't know this man, but he had sin in his life, and Jesus forgave him of his sin. So we want to see the, the felt need, the obvious need, but we need to spiritually discern the deeper need that every human being uh, that has not been forgiven of their sins needs forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, we go there, but we may not start there. I'm reminded also of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The Lord tells him to leave the revival in Samaria, go down to a desert place. He finds a single Ethiopian official leaving Jerusalem where he's been to worship. He has a scroll of the Bible, which was rare, which was amazing. And he's reading Isaiah. He's reading a prophetic passage about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the Lord says, join yourself. You've got to connect with this person. That's a good side sermon right there. You've got to connect to people. Go where they are. So he joins himself to the chariot. They're bumping along the road in the chariot. And he's reading. And the Ethiopian man asks a question and doesn't understand what he's reading. But the Bible said in Acts 8.35 that Philip opened his mouth and he began at the same scripture and preached Jesus, preached unto him Jesus. Now this is important. He could have said, now wait a second, we're not starting in Isaiah 53. I don't think they were numbered back then. The verses didn't have references. We're not, we're, no, 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 we're not going there. We're going over here to the Roman road of repentance. We're going to go to Romans 3, 5. We're going to go, that's where we're going. No, he was wise enough to say, if this man is in Isaiah 53 right now, and he's got a question about that, we're going to start where he is. We make a, a big mistake of it. We're assuming where we think that person wants to go or where we want them to go. We want them to repent. We want them to be baptized. We want them to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's their deepest need. But you need to start where they are so you can take them where they need to go. After Philip began there and preached Christ to him, he was baptized. And it would be implied that he received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So now when you pray with people, you want to be sensitive to them, as I said. And to me, praying with people in the altar is, is like parenting in a way, and not that I'm an expert parent, but you shouldn't parent your children by your nature as much as by their nature. We have three sons, they're all very different. And our approach is, you know, you have to have some uniformity and rules and things like that that are house rules. But to really get through to that child, you should understand their nature, what, how to best train them up in the way they should go. And I believe the same is true in working with people. You don't approach everyone the same way because this is your standard approach to converting lost people. I've quoted before, you know, Maslow's hammer example, credited to some other people as well. He said, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then you treat everything as if it were a nail. So in other words, all you've got is one tool. There are people that when they work with lost people, 
they ask then the heaven or hell question. There's a place to ask the heaven or hell question. But if that's where you start with every person, that's your approach to every person that comes to the altar, then you're a person with a single tool and you're trying to make everybody flow into the way you do things instead of trying to understand where they are. Everything I've said to this point is part of this point right now. Trying to discern where they are, read where they are, ask them a question about their need of God. Find out whether they're there for healing or salvation or, or as I've said many times, I've had so many people say, you know, my, our family's in trouble, going through a divorce, my son's in jail. I mean, there's any kind of answer that you can get. And if that person is feeling that need, you start there. And you put away the hammer and you bring out a tool that will address the need, what's broken in their life. You with me? So you've got to understand their nature, where they are, not where you are. To that end, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 28, the New Living Translation. This is an amazing passage, somewhat obscure, and especially in the King James, so New Living Translation. Listen to me, listen and pay close attention. Does a farmer always plow and never sow? Is he forever cultivating the soil and never planting? Paul's there to say in the life of a church and person, there are seasons. Amen? We should understand that. Does he not finally plant his seeds? Black cumin, cumin, wheat, barley, emmer wheat, each in its proper way. Everybody say way. And each in its proper place. All of those seeds that were just named are not the same. You do not plant them the same way. Verse 26, the farmer knows just what to do, for God has given him understanding. That's what I'm trying to help us get, is understanding about how to bring a harvest. Praise God. So then he tells them, a heavy sledge is never used to thresh black cumin. That little seed, he said, rather... It is beaten with a light stick. Now, isn't that pretty awesome? So you got this big sledgehammer. You're going to crush that seed. A threshing wheel is never rolled on cumin. Instead, it is beaten lightly with a flail. Notice the farmer has got more than one tool. He has more than one approach in sowing that seed. Verse 28. Grain for bread is easily crushed. So he doesn't keep on pounding it. Wow, this right now, you've got a child who's like that? Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, to anger, lest they be discouraged. You know, there's some things you pound and some things you don't. Okay. He doesn't keep pounding. He threshes it under the wheels of a cart, but he doesn't pulverize it. He changes his approach because of the nature of the seed. The Lord of heaven's armies is a wonderful teacher. And he gives the farmer great wisdom. We need that kind of wisdom. It comes from the word. It comes from the Lord in dealing with people. I want to just apply this for a minute. If you're a supervisor at work, you're an employer, and you have people that work for you. I know you have company policies and you've got all this stuff. 
but we're God's people. And we care about people everywhere, not just when they're kneeling or standing in our altar. And we need to ask God for wisdom and understanding. We don't just need to be, just blabber out there and do our little spiel, our sales pitch, or our pat corrective words. We need to try to understand people, and God will guide you in your home, at work, with people, no matter where it is. God wants to help you be his ambassador to lost people. And biblical, biblical principles apply everywhere. Not just while we're here in this building. I know you know that, but don't miss God's resources to helping you. Amen. Trying to understand them. Just another example of this in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul said, you know, he adapted his approach to people. He said, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Those that are under the law, I approached them under the law. Those that are without the law, like those at Athens, I approached them from nature. He doesn't say that here, but he came to them in a different approach based on where they were. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things. In other words, I adapt my approach. I made all things to all men that I might by all men save some. I don't win all of them, but I'm reaching for people and I'm trying to adapt my approach to who they are so I can bring them into the kingdom of God. Amen. Just a few closing points here about some practical do's and don'ts. So the first do is come to the altar when it's time to pray. And altar counselors, look for people in the congregation, in the altar that need special prayer. And follow directions of the minister. Whoever's preaching may want to handle that altar call a certain way. And we try to adapt ourselves to them. God is not the author of confusion. There's always a human factor at work. At work. You see a guest come in, or by themselves. You may not know for sure they're a guest. You can always introduce yourself to them and sit with them. And when it's time to come to the altar, come to the altar. Following the pattern of Brother Kraft that I sat under, we've had some altar uh, practices here before. We've had you stand and come to the altar and sent you back and so no, that was really slow and took five minutes to decide if you were coming or not. If I'm a guest and the saints don't want to go pray, they're afraid that the snakes are up here hidden, you know, we're going to handle snakes or something like that. They're not coming. Open this big box here, you never know what you'll find inside. And don't take all day. In the south, I heard lollygagging around. You know what that is? Move, folks, you know, like, this is really important. Well, like, I don't know if I want to pray or today or not. That's how people decide to come to church, too. That's not us. And then I've already mentioned, come in front of them, talk to them, find out their need, meet them at that place, that point of need, and guide them. And then, you know, ask them their name, tell them your name, and you're a real-life human being. And when you pray, pray out loud with them because we're wanting them to pray out loud. It doesn't have to be super loud, but be polite with them. If they're holding a child, don't just grab that child out of their arms. Ask them for permission. If they're chewing gum and they're praying to receive the Holy Ghost, it may be conducive for them to spit it out, but do that in a polite way. Don't just be like grabbing their face and trying to, like you're exercising gum from their mouth. 
If they're not getting anywhere, maybe stop them. Ask them, have they repented? Is there anything? And they say, well, you know, you repent and then you receive. So after you've fully repented, now it's time for you to begin to thank God for the Holy Ghost. It is a gift. And I don't have time to get into those details tonight, but that's kind of where we're going there. And then maybe you need to stop and direct them or answer a question. If a person receives a gift of the Holy Ghost, now at Pentecost, there's this Pentecostal superstition that you can never tell them that they were speaking in tongues. That is nowhere in the Bible. Thou shalt not tell a person they just received the Holy Ghost. It's not in the Bible. I understand the caution of that because maybe they were not speaking in tongues. Maybe they're bilingual. So I will ask them, were you speaking in a language you never learned? Were you saying words or phrases you didn't understand? That is a sign of the Holy Ghost. If you were just doing that, that's the Holy Ghost. You were speaking in tongues. And if a person was fluently speaking in tongues, I may just affirm that. If not, I say, well, let's pray some more and let God, let that happen some more. Let God do that again. Amen. So, uh, so if they're speaking in tongues, affirm it. And then be careful. I've seen like altar retreads. They've received the Holy Ghost. Then a fresh altar worker comes in and prays them through again. And they don't know what, well, I thought what had just happened five minutes ago, right? And there's some don'ts, don't have bad breath. I think there's mints in these boxes over here. Hygiene's important, praise God. Don't shake them, push them, rub them, don't distract them. You get all excited, I get all excited, but we wanna, this is not a chiropractic clinic, it's the church. I shared this the other day privately. I saw this happen at the Georgia district in an altar service. A lady was praying, and there was a man that had his hand on her head, and boom, he gave her a chiropractic adjustment, literally. I was in charge of managing the altar, and I stopped him and said, what, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm a chiropractor. She said her neck was hurting, so I adjusted it. Please do not do that here. There may be some liability associated with that. I am not making this up, and I am not exaggerating. Did I put your hand on places that would be uncomfortable to that person? Then we had a lady who put her hands on the stomach of a young, another, a young lady, she was expecting a baby, and we didn't realize that was her mother, but uh, praying for her daughter's baby. But, you know, we're very careful about that, and if we come stop you, I just want you to know I love you very much, and I do not want to offend you. But I would rather offend you 10 times than a brand-new person once because I'm counting on you to forgive me if you think I'm wrong. Of course, I'm really counting on God to reveal to you that you are wrong. <laughs> Amen. Even ladies praying with other ladies should be respectful of that, their body and their space, be respectful and, and careful. Um, you know, we try not to rearrange whatever hair they may have. 
And then, you know, I was raised in church. I've seen and heard so many things. You've got one person over here. I like one person to take the lead. Hold on. Turn loose. Let go. Let your tongue go. Where? <laughs> Let it go where? We don't teach people that if you say Jesus fast enough that you're going to speak in tongues. And then we like to say, and I have, you know, praise God, hallelujah is a high word of praise. It's a word of surrender in praise. It means praise the Lord, generally. And you receive the Holy Ghost praising the Lord. But just because hallelujah has several symbol, syllables, it doesn't mean it's going to be easier for them to speak in tongues. We never teach a person to speak in tongues. They spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the ability to speak. Amen. If you don't mind, please stand. I've gone a little lengthy tonight. I wanted to finish this do's and don'ts. I didn't expect it to be that funny, but I hope it helped you. Amen. Billy Cole taught us that when you lay hands on a person, don't put hands on them, take it off, put it on, take it off. You lay hands on them, pray with them, and you generally are praying that prayer of faith as they're receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Don't take your liberty to remove their coat, and ties, and scarves, and glasses. Just ask them that. And I've really learned, and this was hard for me, that when a person is in a rut, you know, we say they're wearing out the saints of the Most High God. They've been praying for 30 minutes. They have gotten nowhere. If they're repenting and they're really pouring their heart out, they may take them that long. But if they're just stuck, typically I'm going to try to just stop them and say, you know, find out where they are and instruct them a little bit and, uh, and then encourage them to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Some people believe that they're not worth anything to God. They don't believe they're worth saving. So they never quit repenting. They don't have faith. They don't understand the gift of the Holy Ghost is for the worst of all sinners. But if we can inspire them to have faith that God loves them, Die for them when they were sinners and they can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen?